This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news. 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This Time Tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we're going to talk about something we both love so much. It is. It's like one of our favoritest things. It is. It is cheese. Oh, cheese. Cheese has a 9,000 year history. And the varieties that we have of it today are mostly the products of little tweaks that people have made throughout history for one reason or another. Um, Basically, every cheese that we have today has some kind of story to tell about where it came from that's tied to the animals that were being raised, what the weather and climate were like, the people making the cheese, whether it had to be stored or shipped or anything like that. Um, a lot of these refinements come straight from human ingenuity and curiosity, but it's also a very necessity is the mother of invention kind of story. Uh, making cheese is a balancing act with milk and how much moisture, salt, and bacteria are in that milk, and what people's lives were like when they were trying to make cheese. So I'm excited. And it's kind of interesting uh, from an anthropological standpoint, because as people have spread out, cheese went with them. Yes. So it really has um, brought its own flavor, to be punny, unfortunately, uh, of to various cultures, like cheese informs cultures in an interesting way. And the cultures inform the cheese. Yes, I love it. Uh, I did not mean for that to be a pun, but that's what came out. We, we we're being all punny and reciprocal in, our, <laughs> in the cheese cycle. Right. <laughs> so here's the legend of where cheese came from. And, and there are a couple of problems with this legend uh, that gets, it gets passed around as, as fact. So according to the lore, someone, uh, an, uh, an, a person in, some uh, Arab country was traveling a very long way, carrying milk in a skin that was made from an animal's stomach. Um, and when he got ready to take a drink of milk, he discovered it had curdled into cheese. Uh, this may have been how people discovered rennet, which is the an enzyme from animal stomach that is used to make cheese. But it's probably not where cheese came from for a couple of reasons. One is that before people started eating cheese, milk was pretty much just for babies because adult humans could not digest lactose. 
Um, they couldn't make lactase, which is the enzyme that break do- breaks down lactose after they were babies. So unless this guy was traveling a long way with a baby, he didn't really have a good reason to be carrying a skin of milk with him. Or maybe he was going to visit a baby. Maybe. But maybe people didn't often carry milk around in skins because it was a high risk of spoilage. Right. It really, milk was consumed fresh and only by babies until after cheese uh, was discovered slash invented. A more likely scenario is that people discovered that if you left milk out, it would solidify and coagulate. And if you worked at it a little bit, you could separate that into curds and whey. And it's not far to get from that to cheese. So that's a little more likely than the animal skin carrying story. Just keep thinking about cheese. Uh, So the more likely history, uh, you know, by about 7,000 B.C., uh, people living in the Fertile Crescent had started to domesticate animals and they were cultivating plants. So they had sheep and goats and goats in particular were used. Uh, they were accustomed to living in relatively confined spaces like caves. So they would have been very easy to domesticate at that point. Uh, if you look at evidence from that long ago, the goats and sheep that were being kept were probably more about meat than milk uh, because there wasn't an overwhelming number of female animals versus male animals. Um, They also look at what ages the animals were at slaughter. Uh, Farming for wool also would have come later because sheep that far in the past didn't really have usable wool as their hair. Um, So the earliest sheep probably mostly used as a source of meat. So several things had had to happen for people to wind up making cheese. They had to have a reason to want to pasture animals uh, and use pastured animals as a, as a food source. They had to have animals that could give them more milk than their own young needed, uh, which would have taken some generations of breeding to get animals that produce more milk. I love this one. <laughs> they had to know how to milk the animals. Right. That had to have been an interesting trial and error. <laughs> yes. Well, and then the animals had to allow themselves to be milked by people. Yeah. Uh, which is another thing, you know, animals can be very obstinate. So this is another thing that would have required some effort. And lastly, they would have needed a way to store the milk. But as we talked about before, there are some difficulties with using skins for storing milk. This worked out to be pottery. Um, or more specifically, the discovery that you could apply heat to clay and turn it into pottery. And so once we had all those things together at the same place at the same time, people were able to develop cheese. And this happened at about 6,500 BCE in the western half of what is Turkey today. We can look at shards of pottery from that era and know that people were raising animals for milk because there are milk fat residues in the pottery shards. Um, And the proportion of male and female animals also changes in the anthropological record at that point. So you would could because you would need more females to be producing the milk. Yes. Now, probably uh, this milk started out as a food source for babies, as we mentioned earlier, since humans had not adapted their ability to process lactose. Uh, But they would have quickly figured out since they didn't have refrigeration that that milk sitting out was going to coagulate and that they could turn up the curds and whey when they stirred it. Most of the lactose stays in the whey when you separate the curds from the whey. So adults could eat the curds and get all the nutritional value with either 
no problems or fewer problems from a digestive standpoint. <laughs> yes, from a digestive standpoint. If you or anyone you know is lactose intolerant, you have a sense of what that is all about. Um, so curds were a really valuable source of nourishment. So people had a, a good incentive to figure out an easy way to separate curds from whey. And this came in the form of perforated ceramic canisters. We have lots of archaeological evidence for people using ceramic containers with uh, with perforations in them to separate curds and whey. Um, There's also been some theories about woven baskets as well, right? But those don't really yeah, stand up to scrutiny long term. <laughs> they don't hold up as well over thousands of years. So we don't have as much concrete evidence of whether people were using woven baskets to make cheese by separating curds and whey. Um, Based on the fat residues in pottery, uh, we think people also figured out how to make things like butter at about the same time. The earliest cheeses were all, they were fresh cheeses. They were more like today's ricotta or other soft, kind of curdy cheeses. People would have eaten them quickly since they would spoil without refrigeration. Um, they also may have sealed and buried these cheeses to try to keep them out of the sun, keep them a little cooler. And they would also, uh, the curds could dry in the sun. Yes. Uh, And it's possible that rennet, the enzymes from animal stomachs used to ferment, were discovered at this time as well. The record isn't super clear. It's not as easy to find residue of something on an animal skin that's broken down over time as it would be ceramic. Uh, But it's a likelihood. So really, cheese making then spread out from the Fertile Crescent. We have lots of pottery shards as evidence that show the progression of cheese. Uh, along with lots and lots of other things spreading out uh, during the Neolithic migration. People were making cheese and butter from the milk of cows, goats, and sheep. Um, And one of the most recent discoveries of of this progression is from not too long ago, and it was a 7,500-year-old piece of pottery that was almost certainly used to make cheese in what is Poland today. They did the same thing of looking at the residues that were on the inside of the pottery and and what they were made of. And so for many years, even with this uh, migrational progression outward from where it started, the cheeses still remained like the fresh acid coagulated and rennet coagulated cheeses. So they still hadn't gotten to the aged cheese concept. Right. And in some parts of the world, that, that continued to be for always what people were making. An example is in India. Uh, India has a really old tradition of using dairy products with lots of ghee, which is clarified butter, and using curds in their cuisine. But the only cheese that's indigenous to India is paneer, which is a soft cheese meant to be eaten fresh. There are lots of different theories for why uh, India did not develop aged cheeses. And one of them is that there is such a focus on food purity in religious texts in that part of the world that people were probably not down with the idea of letting things mold on purpose and then eating them. (laughs) So uh, the climate in in India is also not great for the controlled spoilage that is really what aging cheese is all about. Yeah. You know, I'm imagining that conversation. No, no, it will be delicious. (laughs) No, it will be rotted. Uh, But thankfully... 
that worked out. Uh, and as soon as cheese became an important, important as part of people's diets, it also took on religious significance. Uh, offerings of cheese were made to the gods. For example, the Sumerian goddess Inanna, who got daily offerings of cheese and butter, and a number of Greek gods and goddesses who had cheese among their offerings. There are also lots and lots of references to cheese in many religious texts from all over the world. Uh, it didn't take long, though, before people started seeing the need to be able to store cheese to eat it later instead of being able to make it and consume it within a day or two. So around 1400 BCE, uh, Hittite writing starts describing more types of cheese that sound a little bit more like the harder cheeses that we have today. Uh, we don't have really good evidence of all of them. We have more descriptions in writing, but they include uh, descriptions like scoured cheese and hard soldier cheese. So there's the logical conclusion that they developed ways of aging the cheese to make it harder, to take down the water content in the cheese so that it would last longer, um, and uh, being able to form a rind on the cheese. But we don't have a lot of like very clear pottery evidence to go with that. It's mostly written descriptions that people are drawing conclusions from. The first recorded shipment of cheese took place in 1200 BCE through the Mediterranean Sea, which is further evidence that people had developed cheeses that would keep at that point. Most of the cheeses that were being shipped around were probably brined cheeses like feta that were stored in ceramic jars. And the reason that even though these cheeses are very soft and wet, the reason that they last for longer is that there's lots and lots of salt in them. Um, If you dry salt a white cheese that has lots of moisture in it, the whey starts to come out and mix with the salt, and it makes this brine that keeps the cheese fresher for a longer period of time. Thank you, salt. For feta, which is delicious. (laughs) Yes, I'm literally just rubbing my tummy and licking my lips over here. That was one of the hardest parts of researching this podcast is when I I got to a couple of the cheeses that are delicious and also very salty, and Mm. I wanted some real bad. So uh, Greece became an important area for the development of cheese. And just like with the earliest cheesemakers, the Greeks were making fresh cheeses for daily eating. But they were also exporting cheese. So they were developing these harder, hardier varieties of cheese that could survive voyages. Yes, we have a wonderful glimpse of how these hard cheeses were being made in Greece, thanks in part to Odysseus's encounter with the Cyclops in the Odyssey. Um Even though that is a work of fiction, we're pretty much seeing a play-by-play of how people were making cheese at the time. Uh, The Cyclops coagulated the milk, probably using rennet and maybe also fig sap. And then he pressed and dried what he got from that. Uh, The Odyssey doesn't mention that he salted it, but probably based on other evidence at the time, he would have then salted uh, what he got from that process. Um, And he would have pressed it and let it dry and it would have formed a rind as it dried there were drying racks described in cyclops's cave and so the result of this would have been a dried pecorino or caprino cheese and this is probably the first description of a rennet coagulated cheese in literature and the takeaway from the odyssey is that by ancient greece people had figured out how to coagulate press and salt cheeses in this way that would make a rind and would be suitable for aging. Which is so fabulous that it's in the Odyssey of all places, this record of cheese making. I know. 
Centuries later, people in Greece added a cooking step also, which allowed cheeses with an even lower moisture content, which would make them last even longer. And in Sicily, hard cheeses became wildly popular. And by the 4th century BCE, their native cuisine at that point was full of grated cheese and cheese sauces. It was so prevalent that there were cheese naysayers. There were there were sort of the the Sicilian 4th century BCE version of the angry food critic who would be like, why does there have to be cheese sauce on everything? Just let the fish stand on its own. Because it's so delicious. Because it's so yummy. So cheese making in Rome started a lot like it did in Greece with people making heat coagulated fresh cheeses using these vessels, uh, which are called milk boilers. So while the cheeses were these uh, coagulated curds and whey kind of process, uh, the vessels that they were using were kind of unique to uh, to the, what's Italy today. Um, based on the distribution of these milk boilers, which were ceramic things that kept the, the milk from foaming over the top, uh, it, it's clear that making soft cheeses were was an important staple uh, in the Bronze Age all over Rome. These were actually still in use in Italy as ceramic milk boilers until the 19th century, and then metal ones became in more common use uh, after that point. There is an interesting symbiosis uh, that happened between cheesemaking and pig farming in Rome. Uh, the way that they were extracting during the ricotta process was actually a great food for fattening up pigs. Right. And making them also delicious. Yeah. So they would milk lots of animals, get lots of milk, separate the curds from the whey, feed the whey to pigs, and then have pork to eat. Uh, as the Greek influence, so we had just talked about how in Greece they were making these smaller, harder cheeses. So as Greek influence spread in Rome, hard cheeses did as well. And by the 7th century BCE, grated cheeses were a big part of the diet in Rome also. And there are many, many uh, Roman writers who put together very detailed uh, agricultural manuals. And if you care to do so, you can read so much about how people were making cheese in ancient Rome, thanks to these writers. Uh, and in Rome, people would raise large flocks of sheep to produce both cheese and wool. At that point, they had developed uh, a sheep farming that was geared more towards wool production. And they used the whey left over, again, from the cheese making to feed the pigs. And they also started experimenting, and this is where it gets really good for me personally, with smoked cheeses. Right. Uh, and also cooked cheeses and much larger cheeses than the smaller size pecorino and caprinos. Uh those stay small so that the the milk and fluid from the middle can evaporate more and they'll keep longer. Right. But then bigger cheeses became technologically more uh, doable. Right. The most famous giant thing of cheese uh, in, in ancient Rome was called La Luna. Probably the accounts at the time are really exaggerated because they they're, describe it as this like giant thing of cheese. Um it was probably not as giant as it is often described. Uh, but people were using cooking and high-pressure pressing to get more of the liquid out of the middle so that they were able to make bigger and bigger cheeses. Is it how, how big is it described? Could a family of four live in it? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, one writer described it as being able to provide lunches for hundreds of your servants at, in, from just one. Oh. It's probably not actually that big. Uh, some of this innovation of, of combining cooking and high-pressure pressing may have come from the Celts who were living in the Alpine regions. They also were known as great cheesemakers, and they had been making bigger cheeses than the little ones that had been coming out of Greece. The Celts may have also started the practice of salting the smaller curds before pressing them together into one larger cheese. So, again, the salt was making it into the middle of a bigger cheese cylinder and preventing spoilage. Right. I like how it's all about making the cheese bigger and bigger and bigger. It is so much about making the cheese bigger. And there's there's obstacles when you're working with those kinds of... uh, more manual processes to try to get the middle of the cheese dry enough so that it doesn't spoil in the middle while the outside is drying. Yeah, that's no good. No. So where, what we've gotten up to at this point is, is the end of the Roman mil- Empire. Uh, before the Roman Empire fell, it spread military outposts and agricultural manor estates all over the place. Both the military outposts and the manor estates had dairying and cheesemaking tools. So when the Roman Empire fell, uh, all of that stuff was left behind that people then continued to use to make their own new types of cheeses. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuff you missed in history class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. And those new types 
developed all sort of on their own trajectories based on the factors that we'd already talked about. Like there was human curiosity and ingenuity, but also, uh, you know, what was available nearby, you know, weather conditions, uh, what the people that were there already knew, et cetera. Uh, so this continued to be true at, even as the manors broke up into tinier farms where people only had one or two animals uh, instead of like a whole herd to produce cheese from. Right. So in, in France, uh, soft ripened peasant cheeses began to develop. This was basically using the same cheese making methods that had been common in the Mediterranean. But in the cooler climate of northern France, people could hang on to their milk for a couple of days before they made cheese out of it. So in the Mediterranean, that would have spoiled almost immediately. But where the weather was cooler, you could milk your cow and then milk your cow again the next day and then maybe one more day after that uh, and put that all together to make cheese out of. And the the milk from the first day of milking at that point would have more lactic acid bacteria in it. Uh, being able to put all of that together and then put what you got as a result into a nice cool cellar meant that you could control the spoilage that was going on. And that's how French cheesemakers were coming up with bloomy rind cheeses, lactic cheeses, and washed rind cheeses. These were all things that were having bacterial activity going on in the inside of the cheese that was creating this rind that is often edible, that is basically mold. Holly, you were making the most hungry face. Delicious bald. Uh, and while manors uh, were crumbling into smaller farms in other parts of Europe, in England, many of them stayed intact until the end of the Middle Ages. So many of those manors had like a dairy maid who would supervise all of the dairying. And most of the cheese in those manors came from the sheep rather than the cows for most of the Middle Ages. And they continued to follow and refine many of the more hard cheese trends that the Romans had been using. So they have their whole own cheese culture, again, not meaning to be punny, but their own methodologies and approach to it happening as well. Right. Uh, In the 13th century, so partway through the Middle Ages... The sheep who were being used for milking were also used for wool, and the cows used for milking were also used for meat and leather. Uh, But right around the 13th century, uh, people started to divide that up a little bit. So sheep were there for wool, there were dairy cows who were just for milking, and then there were other cows that were being used for their meat and their their leather. Um, This is also about the time that the English dairying started to move to cows from sheep, uh, because cow's milk separates more easily into cream to make butter out of. Uh, And people were becoming very fond of butter in England. Uh, A series of illnesses and really wet seasons, which are bad for sheep, also brought down the sheep population, making the use of cow's milk to make cheese a little bit more of a necessity. And in the mountains of Europe in the Middle Ages, uh, so the mountainous reasons, cheeses had to be very sturdy and rugged. Uh, both because you had to bring them down out of the mountains and later export them. Uh, and for example, one of my very favorite cheeses. Gruyere. Gruyere. So yummy. It's, oh, I love the stuff. Uh, the animals were generally pastured up on the mountains, uh, and then the people working with them would live there with the animals, make the cheese there, and then it would have to travel downward. This meant that the people who were making cheese in the Alps had to work around the lack of salt, because to get salt to the animals where you were doing the milking and making the cheese, you would have to transport it up there. And that would be difficult and expensive. 
So cheesemakers in the Alps figured out ways to cut the curds to make them smaller and cook more of the moisture out of them and put the curds into a a more wheel-shaped form. A lot of the cheeses before this point were were more like cylinders than wheels. So putting it into more of a wheel-shaped form would give more surface area for better evaporation. So some of these alpine cheeses actually had holes or eyes, and that was from the collection of carbon dioxide during aging. There was bacteria in there that would flourish in those conditions and create these little pockets. Uh, they would give off carbon dioxide as they reproduced, and that carbon dioxide would expand. collect. Yeah, it would collect in little holes. So the, the holes that you think of in Swiss cheese, that's from bacteria yeah. propagating. Cheese is really just disgusting no. and so good. Um, I can get past any of the disgusting parts. Uh, and that's actually, incidentally, what gives it that sort of nutty flavor. Right. So I'll take it. <laughs> Another mountain cheese that came from the Middle Ages is Roquefort. And the veins in Roquefort cheese are from Penicillium Roqueforti, which grows in the caves where it was aged. Uh, real Roquefort cheese today comes from these same caves where... It was originally aged in the Middle Ages and wound up infested with this bacteria that gave it its look and its flavor. Uh, Parmesan also came about during the Middle Ages, though it was not from the mountains. And the techniques used to produce it are common in the mountains, but there was plenty of salt in the Po River Valley where it originated. So they didn't have quite the same uh, limitations in terms of resource availability. Uh, but it uses techniques very similar to the alpine cheeses, just with the salt that the alpine people didn't have. And this is where I wanted some really salty Parmesan so bad yesterday when I was working on this. Oh, jeez. So by the Middle Ages, a lot of the cheeses that we eat today had had been developed, at least in their earlier forms. I mean, there are many revisions and tweaks to cheeses that have happened since then. But lots and lots of the ones that we are most familiar with existed in some form by the end of the Middle Ages. One exception is the cheese that comes from Holland, where commercial dairying did not even start until the 15th century because the land and the climate were just not right for it. There had been uh, some very small farming and dairy operations on the coast since the Neolithic period, though, Uh, but just not enough to really form an industry around it. Right. After the fall of the Roman Empire, the aristocracy in Holland started trying to reclaim Holland's frontier and turn it into workable land. They did not have very many people to try to do this. It was not a vastly settled area. So they would reward peasants who would clear and work land with big grants of land. And what they were basically doing is trying to turn bogs into farmlands uh, by using pumps and dikes to get all the water out of it. Um, As they were able to reclaim more land, they started by growing grains and then eventually moved from growing food to dairy. And then so many cheeses. (laughs) The dairy farms actually became really, really specialized. And they put out an insane variety of cheeses through various innovations in packaging, equipment, etc. Once they had the technology, they went wild sort of expanding and customizing it, which I love. Uh, English cheesemakers at the time were responding to demand, while Holland didn't have those constraints. So they could just invent new cheese that people wanted. So that's where we get an assortment of deliciousness, right. <laughs> including Edam, Gouda. Um, different kinds of packaging came from that sort of pocket of innovation. The round instead of square wheels. 
Thank you, Holland. Right. There was a whole, in, in England at that particular point, there was this whole kind of drama going on with cheese. There was a, a cheesemonger's essentially union that was recognized by the government that had been really controlling the cheese making around London. And then that went horribly awry and they had to start looking to other parts of England to make cheese. And that led to basically the whole of English cheese making being about how do we meet the demands of London? Holland did not have this problem. Oh, they so, kind of had a uh, the rich luxury of a playground, really, to just kind of develop cheese they thought would be neat. Yeah. So when you see these these cheeses that have really lovely colored coatings, there's sort of like a, a, a firm and resilient nuttiness to them. A lot of that is coming from the combination of what the climate is like in Holland and then the fact that they've sort of just got to go, let's think up some new stuff. Let's see what happens if we wash this cheese with this other animal product. Let's think up cheese. So good. Uh, so eventually, uh, colonists brought cheese and cheese making pretty much everywhere that people were colonizing. Cheese traveled with everybody because apparently a lot of people loved it then too. Yes. And it's a very valuable new, uh, food source. I mean, it's, it started as sort of a necessity of how can we make this milk not immediately be bad? Uh, And then people discovered that, yeah, this is actually a good source of nourishment in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Industrial Revolution really changed things because it mechanized a lot of these processes that had been kind of what we would consider artisan, handcrafted. Right. So whereas uh, before the Industrial Revolution, making cheese was highly, highly dependent upon the weather and the climate and the altitude and the everything. Um. The Industrial Revolution made it possible for people to kind of replicate those conditions in other places. And so rather than saying, hey, okay, we have cheddar cheese that we're making and we're going to try to figure out how to make cheddar cheese approximately in this not very English climate uh, and then winding up with some other cheese, it's, it's becomes a lot more possible during the Industrial Revolution to say, okay, we're, we're going to replicate this technique and also replicate the conditions that were present elsewhere to make this cheese that, that will be more like what we are thinking about from where we used to live. And in the U.S., you know, there wasn't the long-term cultural heritage that Europe had going into cheese development. And the cheese factories just kind of blossomed. Yeah. Uh, people had, I mean, they had families and people had their family heritage and and they knew how their grandmother had made cheese before the family had made their way to the to the colonies but there was not quite the the institution of cheese making as this long many many generations of things in one particular place so the u.s became a huge center of making and exporting cheese uh, and in some cases, traditional techniques have kind of died out because of the mechani- mechanization as well as supply and demand. Uh, mozzarella in most places is not made the same way it once was. No, that's it's the mozzarella was sort of a handcrafted cheese in Italy that was made in very small batches, and you can make it in a big factory with machines, which uh, a lot of the cheese today, big factory with machines, rather than the previous uh, handcrafted sort of small batches. As we've seen with many things, there is, of course, now an artisan cheese movement where people are making things in small batches using the same basic techniques that people were using hundreds or thousands of years ago. Mm, 
just want to think about cheese for a little while longer. I know. <laughs> you have today uh, a lot of uh, efforts to sort of label the cheeses as, quote, the real thing. So, like, Roquefort, you can only call a cheese Roquefort if it was actually made in those caves. Right. Uh, people can approximate Roquefort-like cheeses elsewhere. Uh, but, but it can't carry the name. It, right. It cannot carry the name. There are protected designation of origin or PDO labels that uh, label where the cheese came from or the geographical indication or the, the GI label of where the cheese came from. And, and it's sort of like wines and how champagnes are only supposed to come from champagne and not California. Not all the sparkling wines. Not every that sparkling. people often call champagne. Right. And not every blue cheese is Roquefort. Right. Oh, I love cheese. <laughs> you do. It's hard not to wax rhapsodic about cheese. Yeah, there is so much. Uh, that's when when I said, "Hey, let's do a podcast about cheese." I think what you said is, "I could do." I, I can't remember which cheese it was that you said. We were like, "I could do a whole podcast about Gruyere, probably, probably, or Hitost, which is oh. the Norwegian cheese that I'm a big fan of. So I think yummy. it's usually called Brunost over there. We call it. That's kind of the what it's usually exported as, but it's phenomenal and it has a sweet. Nutty. It's a brown cheese. It's phenomenal. Yes. So I say that a lot. There is so much to learn about cheese beyond the sort of the origins of cheeses that we've talked about today. We will link to lots of places to learn about more about cheese in our show notes uh, when we put those up after this podcast comes out. The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Join us as we hear from the world's greatest athletes, coaches, and trainers as they discuss how they utilize training, competition, recovery, and the latest innovations in fitness to improve their performance and push through their personal, physical, and mental challenges. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. You can practice every day because you're working on things. Like you might slow something down or exaggerate another thing, but when you're competing, you're going as hard as you can for even that short amount of time. It's a lot of intensity and it's a lot of physical power. It's a lot of mental power. I think that's why it's so draining and to shift gears after every event. Like, oh, I just ran the hurdles. Now I have to think about high jump. How do I get as high up in the air as I can after I just tried to run as fast as I can? Giving that much intensity in such contrasting events can can be really be difficult. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. And am I to understand that you also have a bit of listener mail? I do have. I have two listener mails. They are both from Facebook, and they are both about Johnny Appleseed. Aha. Uh-huh. The first is from Benjamin. And Benjamin says, You mentioned that John Chapman died when he was 70, and that it was impressive, given the life expectancy at the time was 40 years. While both facts are correct, the comparison is invalid. Life expectancy was so low because of the high rate of infant and child mortality, not that 40 was the age most adults were dying. While living to 70 is impressive, it's not far out of the expected lifespan of an adult at the time. This is true. Ah, so 40 is an average based on infant death as well as people that were living to be in their 70s. Right. And what's funny is that uh, both both podcasts, we, we recorded two podcasts about people right at the same time. There was the Johnny Appleseed one and the Marjorie Kemp one. And both, in both cases, the people writing had remarked on their age at death and how old that was compared to uh, the average. average. Um, I found this awesome site that I will link to in our show notes where you can graph life expectancies from birth. 
versus from age five versus from age 21. Um, And really, once you got to age, once you got past age five, you got a bunch of more years of life expectancy. Um, And then once you got to age 21, also similarly, extra years of life expectancy. So a lot of people were dying between birth and five. But if you got past five, and especially if you got past 21, then you were more likely to live a lot longer. So thank you, Benjamin, for pointing that out. And we will link to this awesome, awesome mapping history site that I found. Uh, so cool. It's so cool. <laughs> I spent way too much time doing that this morning when I was meant to be doing other things. Um, the other listener mail that I have about Johnny Appleseed is from Jeremy. Jeremy says, I love stuff you missed in history class and love your recent podcast on Johnny Appleseed. I listen to your interesting and informative talks while I take my fine racing dachshund on long walks around town. I am a new church minister, uh, and I'm not going to say where he is the pastor, because I think that might be. We'll retain privacy. We'll retain privacy. he would like some. In case he would like that. Uh, but he is a new church minister, and we have always been proud of this quirky character who did so much to spread the word of Swedenborg in the early 1800s. We have several signs of Johnny's trees in town here, and there are many descendants in our congregation of people that he converted. I love that you referred to the new church as intellectual. It is true that it is great for explaining Christian teaching. One thing I would note is that although Johnny was unusual, I doubt that it is true that he had talked of having two spirit wives, as this would never fit with new church theology. While it's true that the new church had this kind of a heyday in the USA in the 1800s, especially after the Civil War, it still exists and is growing today all over the world. He says, keep up the great work. So thank you very much, Jeremy. That's such a great uh, insight from a perspective we would not normally have access to. It is great. Um, The source of my source about the Spirit Wives things. So the source was the Johnny Appleseed book that we talked about in the podcast. My source's source uh, was by N.N. Hill and others. Uh, The history of Coshocton County, Ohio. It's past and present, 1740 to 1881, containing a comprehensive history of Ohio, a complete history of Coshocton County, a history of its soldiers in late war, biographies and histories of pioneer families, etc. That is the entire title. It's from 1881. You can read the entire thing at archive.org if you want, which is incredible. Um, so I don't know what the that particular book's source was, but the other information that it has about Johnny Appleseed looks to be correct. Um, so while I do not know for certain where that information came from, I will say that... Uh, as is often the case, uh, one person's behavior should not be seen as representative of an entire religion. Yeah. Well, and we also know from that podcast that he did love to tell stories and sometimes love to tell odd and interesting stories to entertain people. So we can't know unless we really dig pretty deep far back and we may not have access to that information. If the germ of that may have been in something like that, or if he really believed it, we don't don't really know. But now we know that that is totally not down outside of new church teaching. Yeah. So thank you very much, Benjamin and Jeremy, for your thoughts on these two. Uh, I'm going to put a link to both that inordinately long titled uh, book um, and the mapping history site in our show notes if you would like to look at them. If you would like to talk to us, there are so many ways that you can. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash history class stuff. We're on Twitter at Missed in History. We're also at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. And you can email us at historypodcast at discovery.com. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, 
which I absolutely do, you can go to our website and put the word cheese in the search bar and you will find how cheese works, which has lots of information about why cheese does the way it does and a little history section at the end. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Audible. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.